Um, <clears throat> before we just jump right in, I will say today's lesson is in the kind of go to the doctor mode. Um, you may not love it, but you need it. And it's not full of uh, biblical passages and references and examples, although that would be certainly good to do. It's more how we look at Scripture as a whole. And I think this, pa this uh, lesson, I I've stolen almost everything I'm going to say pretty much verbatim from that book we've been using, but it's the yellow up there, Who Controls Meaning and How We Read Scripture. And I actually inadvertently didn't change the white. It's just understanding the Bible, not just the New Testament, Who Controls Meaning. So that's where we're going today. So let me pray, and we'll jump right in. Oh, Father, thank you that uh, you have a mind, the mind of the Lord. We read over and over, the uh, thoughts of the Lord are higher than our thoughts. Uh, we read of your wisdom, your insight, and thank you for being who you are, that you're um, living, that you are the I am, you are ever-present, always have and will be, and you perfectly understand and enjoy all that is true about yourself. And thank you, especially in the gathered assembly of your son's church, thank you that you love to reveal yourself. Uh, we confess how slow we are to grasp, even to avail ourselves to your truth, let alone grasp it. So, Lord, empower us by grace to move toward the Bible and to engage with it thoughtfully and, as you say, accurately handling the word of truth. And, Lord, we confess that even on our best day, in our sharpest moments, when we're, uh, some of us, fully caffeinated, we still don't follow we still don't grasp, and we need supernatural intervention, illumination of the Holy Spirit who has inspired the Word written. Help us, God, to know you through your Word. Um, this is eternal life, that we know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Give us an ever-increasing, intimate knowledge of yourself. Help us to understand your Word. We trust this is a prayer you would be delighted to answer. So for your glory, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today's theme is who controls meaning, and I actually smuggled in a fourth lesson to next month as well, and it's going to be the role of the Holy Spirit. So today's smuggled in lesson and next month's smuggled in lesson really go together. They're part one and two, who controls meaning and what is the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then, as is our normal pattern, the first three Sundays of the month, we've already got some lessons scheduled out between now and then. Okay, so in Who Controls Meaning, there's five things we're going to look at. Again, this is following, uh, just go back, Duvall and Hayes' uh, chapter by this very title, Who Controls Meaning? The central issue is communication. Uh, there are m many, many, many challenges with communication in a fallen world. Not from God, but on our end. Uh, definitions, determining authorial meaning, the author's meaning, 
and determining theological principles. What if we bump into something that sounds like it contradicts something else in Scripture? How does uh, kind of first-tier theology drive our understanding of what may look like it contradicts that? That's where we're headed. So first, who controls meaning? Um, <clears throat> great little summation quote here on page 191. The most important question is this. What is meaning and who controls it? Is it the author or is it the reader? That's a very big question, a uh, very important question. And uh, I think the more we dig in, uh, the more we'll see uh, some of our own inadvertent, honestly ignorant mistakes. So who controls meaning? There's two aspects to this. First is authorial intent. What did the author mean to convey? What was his intention? Authorial intent. And the second is reader response. Us not having a flesh and blood relationship with the author, only pen and ink relationship, uh, how do we respond to what he's written and, and get to the appropriate meaning? So authorial intent is the intended meaning of the author. Sorry, the intended meaning of the authors is the true meaning of the text. What he meant is what the text means. And a way a lot of Bible interpreters and teachers of hermeneutics, that's what we're doing right now, Bible interpretation, have put it, is it cannot mean what it did not mean. You have to know what it meant to know what it means. And so reader response would be focusing on the reader as the main character in determination of meaning. There are a lot of so-called preachers who only read the Bible as reader response. Just make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, we want to avoid that error. So <clears throat> the question is author or reader, and obviously you can see by my comments where I'm going to draw the attention, it's authorial intent. So the central issue is communication. Duvall and Hayes give an example of John Lennon's, he's the Beatles guy who wrote a song back in the day, now it's going to be stuck in your head all day long, uh, with a little help from my friends. And it's got a catchy tune, but if you listen to that song, uh, I wonder if you know what you're singing when it's stuck in your head. Uh, the highlighted word friends, uh, Lennon used that word not to refer to his besties, not other humans, but to drugs, with a little help from my friends. So that's his meaning, and I sure hope you don't sing it that way. All right? So authorial intent and reader response. And <clears throat> when it comes to Scripture, there's no nefarious meaning. There's no detrimental bad meaning. So getting to what the author's thinking or, as Peter said about the Old Testament prophets, sometimes they didn't understand what they were writing. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. But the Spirit of Christ within them was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. But they didn't, they saw in a mirror dimly when they were writing about those things. But the New Testament has revealed to us what the intended meaning was from the divine author. All right, so this is a. Um, very objective sign in our culture. Everybody sees it and is familiar with it. On the way to church this morning, uh, for those of you who were my fellow North Parkway from Uptown drivers, you saw an atrocious wreck. Single car accident. Anybody else see this? Yeah, oh yeah. There's about 20 people. 
uh, red Camaro, yeah, totally smashed. Single car accident, hit one of Memphis's nice light poles. In the median, which is about a 15 to 20 foot wide grass strip on North Parkway. Uh, I wasn't there to watch it, but I think we can put two and two together and say he's going too fast and not paying attention. The damage to the car indicates he's going too fast. The fact that he's in the median indicates he's not paying attention. Uh, but a lot of people don't pay attention to road signs in our culture. And this one has been around for a long time, stop. Many Memphians interpret that as slow down or not. Uh, look for other vehicles or not. Uh, pretend as if it's not there. However, the police interpret it very differently, right? It has a, it has a, a very clear objective meaning and it is latent with authorial intent. So, as we continue on this issue of communication, our main interpretive question of Scripture should not be, what does this text mean to me? We talk about this often. I was going to say a lot, but I, I hope we talk about it a lot. I'm not sure that we do. But it's really important in the fall every single year. In the spring, we're walking through books of the Bible. We have a little bit of guided um, commentary notes to our teleos studies. In the fall, love it. My grace group met this week. It was fantastic. Uh, but we do interaction with the week's sermon. So we talked about Trey's sermon, dipped a little bit into Phil Newton's sermon. And one of the worst questions we can ask each other is, what does this passage mean to you? What does it mean to me? That's a relevant question, but it's secondary to the primary question, what does it actually mean? And it's important for us to remind ourselves that we can get application but only insofar as it's true to the meaning of the text. Okay, more on that. Duvall and Hayes say, if you believe the Bible is God's revelatory word to you, and that the scriptures function as communication from God to you, you should interpret the Bible by looking for the meaning that God, the ultimate author, intended. There's obviously two authors. Jesus is both a divine and human person. One person. Today in the service, we'll read the Nicene Creed. You may remember that the fourth Sunday of every month, no more tasting the truth review. You don't even have to remember this. It'll just happen if you show up. Old creeds and confessions. Today is the Nicene Creed. Jesus is not two people. He's one person. But he is both divine and human. The Bible is not two books. It's one book. It's both divine and human. The ultimate author has an intention, as does the human author, which perfectly coincides with the ultimate author because they were writing under inspiration. Duvall and Hayes again say, we do not create the meaning, rather we seek to discover the meaning that has been placed there by the author. So when we're talking about communication from God to us, it's important for us to try to understand his mind, his intention. All right, that's number two. Number three, let's do some definition work. And this is really where the rubber hits the road in our engagement with Scripture, uh, personally, or like in our small groups or Sunday gatherings. When we use the term author in conjunction with the Bible, we're referring to both the human author and divine author. That's what I was just saying. So ultimately, when the 
when we study the Bible, we're looking for the meaning that God intended. There's human fingerprints all over the Bible. God used roughly 40 people to write the 66 books of the Bible over about 1,500 years of time. And you can discern in almost every passage of the Bible the human author's personality. God doesn't strip the human author of his humanity as he's writing. He actually employs that human author's personality and intellect in the inspiration process. So there's human fingerprints all over the Bible. God doesn't strip the Bible of the human author personality, but he does supersede so that his meaning comes through them to us perfectly. So ultimately we want the meaning that the divine author intended through the agency of the human author. So there's two authors, right? There's also two aspects to reading. There's meaning, what does it mean? And there's application, how do I respond? So looking at both of those, meaning and application, this is, to me, one of the most important. It's very simple. You're not going to learn anything new today, uh, but hopefully it'll drive, uh, draw, what's the word I'm looking for? Drag the plow a little deeper in your fruitfulness in terms of your engagement with the Bible. Meaning is that with which the author wishes to convey. He uses signs to do it. Just like that stop sign. The, the human author is using signs. The divine author is using the signs that the human author uses. The signs are things like grammar and syntax and contextual meaning of words. Application is what the reader does with the author's meaning. If you start with the second, you may get it right. You might. But if you start with the second, you also might get it wrong. So you need to start with the first. What did God and through the agency of the human author mean? What's the truth they're intending to convey? Then what do I do with that? What would that look like in a 21st century U.S. Christian context? So the application, instead of asking what does the passage mean to me, it's better to begin with what does the passage mean? And then, when we ask that question in settings like small groups, what does this passage mean to you? I don't mean to just throw a nuclear bomb on that question. Sometimes we can be so crotchety that we miss the spirit of a question. I do think it's better to say, how does this apply? Not what does this mean to you, it's what does it mean? The second question when we say, what does it mean to you, we're really often, most often asking, so what do I do about it? That's the application question. How should I apply this meaning to my life? Okay? Meaning is something we can validate. It's tied to the text. Meaning derives from the intent of the author, not the reader. Therefore, the meaning of the text is the same for all Christians. It is not subjective and does not change from reader to reader. Every passage, one primary meaning or narrative conveying one primary point. Are there a thousand other uh, supporting truths? Yes. Um, 
often, uh, Stephen Olford, I love, he's, he's in glory now, held a preaching training center in East Memphis. He said, in every passage, there's a dominating theme, main point, integrating thoughts, supporting points, and motivating thrusts, application. How do we live? So if you just take that grid, dominating theme, that's the meaning. All right, application. The second hexagon we were looking at reflects the impact of the text on the reader's life. This is more subjective, not objective. It reflects the specific life situation of the reader. The application will vary from Christian to Christian, but it will still have boundaries influenced by the author's meaning. Let me give you an application example. A pastor friend of mine, before we were pastors, were members of the same church. Our pastor preached a sermon on tithing. My now pastor friend, this is 25 years ago, was convicted by the Lord about his use of, uh, he dipped smokeless tobacco. So a sermon on tithing, which I think was very faithful to the passage, was an application of give your whole life to the Lord and the Lord convicted him of his use of tobacco and he repented and he was a cold turkey repenter. And from then till now, he, he doesn't use it anymore. That's application. And it varies from Christian to Christian. But the meaning is solid and objective. The application is more subjective, but it's applicable on the basis of the principle of the passage. Give your whole life to God Money's just a little symptom of your heart. Well, give your whole life to God. And you can see the application maybe to uh, his conviction about tobacco. Okay, that's definitions. Number four. How do we determine what the author meant? If that's what we got to get to, we got to get to the point of the passage. How do we do that? Well, we've been talking about it the whole this is lesson 17, so all 16 previous lessons have been about that. Uh, but to sum it up, meaning is tied to context and is not determined solely by grammar and dictionary definitions. You can go look up what Webster has to say about the definition of a word and totally miss what the biblical author meant. So I always get stuck in the same examples. Why don't you guys break the monotony of my voice? Give me an example of a word that can have more than one meaning depending on context. What's a word? What is it? All. Okay, so now you got to give examples. How can that have more than one meaning? context there you go yeah um, the Jews were mad at Jesus because the whole world was following after him yeah okay what's another example of that biblical word yes Charles challenging first Peter 3 9 passage yeah what's another one Laura yeah Absolutely. We've got to read those words in carefully in context. Let's do another example or two. 
while the juices seem to be flowing. What's that word? Okay, give for example. Yeah, the Antichrist or the God of this world. Good. Okay, so do you see how if you go look up the word all or slavery or spirit in a dictionary, you're going to get a meaning. It may or may not be the meaning that the biblical context meant, and this applies to all literature, right? It's not just a Bible interpretive principle. So you might be able to break down and diagram a sentence, that's the grammar part, you may be able to look up the meaning of a word in a modern-day dictionary, but the context that that word and phrase is used in drives what the author, divine and human, meant. So, uh, Duvall and Hayes say on 197, you cannot simply look up words in a dictionary and grammar in a grammar book and determine meaning. Meaning is tied to the one who produced the signs, and the signs are, again, grammar, syntax, blah, blah, blah. So, meaning is tied to the one who produced the signs and the context in which the writer produced them. Authors cannot, let's see, how do I? Ha, there we go. Authors cannot always express exactly what they want to say in literature. You've felt this. You ever wanted to write a meaningful letter to somebody and you just grasp? to put it into verbiage. Language has limitations. Some things, such as feelings, are very difficult to convey. And one of Ezekiel and John in Revelation's favorite words is L-I-K-E. It was like this and like that and like this and like a sea of jas uh, stone of jasper and like a sea of crystal and like this. Just, that's the author's signal that beyond what I can write to you, but you should categorically understand this majesty and infinitude and transcendence and glory. Okay, so there's authorial intent. One more slide on that. It's important to understand the relationship between general universal theological truths and context-specific theological truths, which is where we're headed now, in our fifth and final point. There are some truths that if you seem to be reading something in Scripture that contradicts them, your understanding of that passage is wrong. Because certain truths, all, no truth can be violated, and, and you hold a consistent theology. But some truths are ground, and they should drive what we think we might be seeing that seems to contradict said, quote, truth. So here we go, just determining theological principles. We've got a few more minutes. One principle in Scripture about the character of God that we should all know, and we can certainly recite, God is holy. That is true. So there are, I said, universal, general principles, and then there's context-specific applications. All right, so here we go. God is holy. I, I didn't know how to make this slide. This is actually a terrible way to do it, but best I could. There are universal truths on both sides, and there are context-specific truths on both sides, but hopefully it'll make a little bit of sense as I click through. 
Here's some Old Testament examples about the holiness of God. When God reveals in Leviticus 11, he's holy. He says to Israel, separate yourself from sin. That's the first blue. He then gives them Old Testament laws of separation. And then he specifically applies from his holiness. That's the big universal general truth always, all the time. Don't eat pork. That's the application in that passage. Well, you can get yourself in some trouble with Jesus if you keep that application under the new covenant because he said some things very specifically about um, the shelf life of that specific command. All right, so if you have uh, pepperoni on your pizza today during the fellowship, you're not violating Leviticus 11 and ultimately the holiness of God based on, um, that would be a, a, a poor interpretation uh, to maintain that. New Testament, God is holy. Therefore, be righteous. That's parallel to separate yourself from sin. Live righteously. Live godly. Reflect the character of God increasingly. How so? The New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 13 to 22, because God is holy, here's your actions and words. Be self-controlled. Be obedient to God's truth. What would that specifically look like? 1 Peter 3, 13 to 22, love each other. One of the most practical applications in the new covenant of God's holiness is interpersonal Christian love. That comes out of 1 Peter 3, 13 to 22. So there's this big universal ground truth and then more specifically what that looks like in the lives of his people. So theological principle, practical application that flows right out of those things. So one conclusion slide and then I think we've got just a couple minutes if y'all want to do some interactions or additions or questions. God has communicated with us through the scriptures. He has worked through human authors to convey his meaning to us through the text. As readers, we do not create meaning. Rather, we seek to find the meaning that has already been placed into the text by the author. Ultimately divine, also human. Okay, um, some further insights or questions or comments about any of that. Is that a question? No, you're waving at somebody. I thought Landon had a question. <laughs> I love it. Uh, anybody? Yes, sir.
Yeah, I would say emphatically, they did not always know that. I do think Moses knew, um, and I'm going to pull up a passage here in just a second, if my gadget will let me. Um, we're doing a spring series of 10 or 12 lessons starting in February to May, so we don't have, just show up at 915 every week, you don't have to think about this, but in December and January, we do different stuff, and then our classes, Grace Kids Rooted Grow, February to May, August to November. We're in that August to November right now. When we get to February, we're doing a series called Honest Questions. I love what you all have submitted. Keep doing it. There's actually two open weeks remaining because we combine some of your questions into one week. They're really good. They're not just like stump the professor stuff. They're like really, really good questions. So we'll put that link back out on Church Center. We're working hard to try to develop good biblical lessons on each of those really, really, really good questions. That's one of them. Wrong ways to see Christ in the Old Testament. That's one of the questions. So, uh, I'm going to go to First Peter 1. And then, uh, we're going to make this gigantic. And then, I'm going to put it on the screen. Boom. Boom. Oh, that's not, that's Revelation. That's First Peter. All right, I'm going to get as big as I can, and then we're going to stop in two minutes. So here's your, here's your two-minute lesson on Matt's question. First Peter 1, 10, 11, and 12. As to this salvation, the this is the salvation you just talked about in Jesus, through the cross, through the resurrection. This salvation, the prophets, that's the Old Testament, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries. They were working really hard. Careful, searching, inquiring. What did they search and inquire about? They wanted to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. As He, that's the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ, that's the cross, and the glories to follow, that's the resurrection and ascension. It was revealed to them, that's the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you, so they did know that. They were searching hard to know what the Spirit of Jesus was telling them to write, but they did know, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which have now been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So they knew that they were writing something from the spirit of a coming Savior, about that coming Savior, about his sufferings, about the glories that would follow, and the same Holy Spirit who indwelt them and inspired them has now accompanied the preaching of that same gospel in what has, verse 12, been announced to you through the preaching of the gospel. Sorry, I can't hover over the words or it does weird stuff, but right there. So I don't think they got it all because they were making careful searches and inquiries and they couldn't quite see it all and angels can't see it all, but 
they knew enough that there's a coming Savior, and they had their hope in him, and that's one of the many reasons in um, New Testament verbiage that I believe Old Testament saints are saved the exact same way we are. They look forward to the coming Savior. We look back on the Savior that came, and um, I don't know how much they understood all the time. I do think Moses got it. I'll close with this because Matt used the Moses example. Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me because Moses wrote about me. One Moses example, Hebrews 11, 25 to 27. Moses considered, I love this, the reproach of Christ. Not the goodness of Jesus, not the sweet grace of Jesus, the reproach of Jesus. More valuable than all the treasure of Egypt. Therefore he left Egypt, and how did he endure? By seeing him who is unseen. And I think Abraham saw Jesus, not just hoped to see Jesus. He rejoiced to see my day, that's hope. And he saw it, that seeing, and was glad. So they knew something, and um, yeah, how much is good question. Honest question, class, I think that's February the 12th lesson, bad ways to see Jesus in the Old Testament. That's what that lesson's going to be. And if you want a teaser to show up in uh, February to May, y'all have asked questions about Christian nationalism. You've asked questions about eternality of hell and divine justice punishing finite creatures eternally you've asked questions about calvinism you've asked questions about bible codification canon how did we get the bible who who got to decide what books are in it those are really good questions and there's a gob of other good questions like that we'll put that link back out and hopefully y'all will fill up the last two weeks that aren't yet full um Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these precious people. Thank you for your word. The, what a deposit, what a gift. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It exposes us and draws us to Jesus. Do that today in our worship gathering. Cause every heart to latch on to Jesus through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.